0: Well, your Bible might naturally open up to Matthew, but if it does, close it. We finished up Matthew last week, and so we're moving on to a new book, uh, that being the book of James. So move back to the end of your New Testament and get to the book of James, if you would. We're going to start a study in this book, and I want to start tonight with sort of an introduction to this study and also beginning by kind of letting you know what the rationale is behind uh, having this be the next book that we look at. Uh, Back in 2017 and 2018, we did a study that we called Rightly Dividing the Word. And that was a study focused specifically on particular time periods in the Word of God that God identified for us and how God dealt with and continues to deal with people differently in those different periods of time. Now, I know this is somewhat of a controversial stand, but I do believe the Bible teaches that God's plan of salvation is different in different time periods. I want to be clear that grace and faith are the foundation of every, all of God's salvation in every time period. But in certain ages and during certain periods of time, uh, especially like during the law and during the tribulation and so forth, uh, God added certain things to salvation beyond just faith and grace. And those things were necessary for that person to be saved uh, according to that plan. Uh, And the approach that he takes in salvation is dependent specifically on the people he's dealing with that are focused of the work and the time period in which they live. Uh, God deals with the Jews in a certain way. God has dealt with the Gentiles in a certain way. Uh, God deals with the church in a certain way. And those ways are all different from each other. And so the way of salvation God provides is partially dependent upon the group that he's dealing with and also the period of time in which they live. Now, I'm not going to go through all that again tonight that we've gone through in the past, but I do want you to know that if you're going to keep your doctrine right and interpret the word of God accurately, I believe we need to be aware of the period of time and the people that God is dealing with. And so we want to keep our doctrine straight, keep our interpretation straight. We've got to be clear who God is addressing, first of all, and secondly, be aware of the time period in which he is writing. Now, that study on the rightly dividing the word, which you did, like I say, years ago, laid out all those principles in detail for us. Once we concluded that study, we began to look at books in the Bible in God's word that are typically misinterpreted due to inability to rightly divide the word in the period of time that that book is written to or the people that is written to in that book. Now, there are three books in particular where faulty doctrine typically comes from because of not rightly dividing. And those books are the book of Acts, and the book of Hebrews, and the book of Matthew. Those three books are the ones that are most likely to have faulty doctrine come out of them because of uh, not rightly dividing the word. And so what we did, after we did that study on rightly dividing, we went through verse by verse through two of those books, Hebrews and Matthew. We had done a verse by verse series in Acts prior to the study on rightly dividing. Our goal in going through those books was to show how the faulty doctrine comes, uh, and it can be cleared up if those books are simply interpreted right, starting with the premise that God deals with different groups differently in different periods of time. And it's also cleared up, and hear this carefully, folks, when we realize that not all doctrine in the Word of God is for the church. Not all doctrine that you find in the Word of God applies specifically to the church age. Now, we have chosen to study the book of James partially for the same reason, In a few minutes, we're going to look at who this book is written to, and when we do that, we're going to be able to identify the doctrines this book applies to based upon the people that he's writing to. However, just as all the other books we've looked at, and hopefully you saw this also in the book of Matthew that we just finished, even though the doctrine does not apply to us, even though the doctrine is not for our age, there is practical instruction in every book of the Bible for us. You can interpret the Word of God one of three ways, either historically, doctrinally, or spiritually. And the spiritual or practical application applies to every believer, no matter what age they're living in. You can find spiritual truth from every book in the Word of God. And the spiritual application of the book of James is probably some of the most practical instruction you're going to find anywhere in the book. And that's why we've titled this message, or this series, rather, and you can see it at the top of your outline. We've titled this series, The Gospel in Action. And it's very important. That's what this book really is all about. Uh, this book is identifying doctrine, certainly, but it's also looking at the fact that this book gives us instruction on how to make the gospel active in our lives. And that's where the greater emphasis is going to be. We're going to look at the doctrine as we go through it. We're going to see how it doesn't apply to us, how it does not apply to New Testament believer. But beyond that, we're going to look at the practical principles this book gives us uh, on how we can put the gospel on display in our lives to all those around us, and fulfill our theme of this year of being Jesus Christ to our world, being the presence of Jesus Christ to our world. Now, for those of you who enjoy these kinds of things, the book of James has five chapters, has 108 verses, and 2,304 words. So if you like that kind of stuff, there you go. As far as the author of the book, uh, there is quite a debate upon who wrote the book of James. Now, certainly it was James who wrote it, but there are actually three Jameses found in the New Testament. There's James of Zebedee, there's the James, of, uh, James, who is the brother of Jesus, and there's also James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, James of Zebedee is also the brother of the apostle John. Now, the debate is specifically whether or not James of Zebedee wrote this book or James, the Lord's brother, wrote this book. Now, the case for James, the Lord's brother, is based upon the fact that in the book of Acts, we're not going to go there, but in the book of Acts, we find James becoming the leader of the church. He sort of becomes a chairman of the elders in Jerusalem at that time. In Acts 21, 18, he is clearly recognized as the leader of the church, even by Paul himself. He is seen as a pillar of the church, and so he uh, would have the standing necessary, uh, would be expected of somebody who's determined to have written something that was inspired by God and included in the Bible. So he had that standing. That's one possibility. The other possibility of who wrote this book is James the son, of, James, rather, of Zebedee. And personally, I think that is who wrote the, the, the book of James. I'm leaning that way for a couple of reasons, and I'll give you those tonight. In fact, I think they're on your outline also. First of all, one of the criteria for any book being included as part of the plan in the Scripture is that the author must be an apostle. Well, who better to write a book in the Bible than the apostle who was in the inner circle of the Lord? You remember Peter, James, and John? Well, that James is James, the son of Zebedee. James was one of the ones who saw Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. He was the one who sat and heard the Lord's great Olivet Discourse. He was the one who sw- was with the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. So those are certainly qualifications that make him worthy of a place, uh, having a place uh, in God's Word as far as having a book written for the Word of God. Secondly, what you're also going to find, we're going to talk about this more in just a second, you'll find that doctrinally the book of James does not speak of salvation by grace plus nothing, as Paul did. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, had met Paul. In Acts 15:11, uh, he adopted Paul's gospel of salvation by grace alone. So if he were the author of the book of James, we would expect to see that doctrine found in the book that he wrote. We don't find that doctrine in this book. Uh, James of Zebedee was martyred in 43 to 44 A.D. Uh, we have record of that in Acts chapter 12. That means he died before Paul fully dis- revealed the gospel as God gave it to him, the gospel of grace by faith and faith, faith grace plus nothing else. We find that in Acts 13 and Acts 17. That would explain why uh, James did not present that doctrine in his book, that doctrine of salvation. He died before Paul gave the full re- revelation of it. So based on that, I believe that James of Zebedee wrote the book. And if that's the case, obviously it had to be written before James was killed. That would place the writing of this book somewhere around 37 to 39 AD. Now, I realize there's also some dispute about that as well, but if James of Zebedee wrote it, that's the date. Uh, Those who believe James, the brother of Jesus, wrote it would put the date much later, around AD uh, 60 instead. Uh, But if it is James of Zebedee, this is one of the first books written that's included in the Word of God. Uh, Now, with that in mind, look at verse 1, if you would, and let's see who the book is written to. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. So who is he writing to? He is writing to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. Now, even the most basic Bible student is aware the 12 tribes referenced here are the Jews. That's who he's writing to the nation of Israel. However, almost every commentator to write read uh, about uh, read from on this passage will tell you that the tribes referred to are Christian Jews which would then make the doctrine found in this book uh, Church Age Doctrine. Now, we need to be very clear about something. There are a number of Jews, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture, who trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and became Christians. And so they are now Jews who are Christians. However, there is no group anywhere in Scripture mentioned that is called Christian Jews. You don't find that group anywhere in the Word of God. I want to turn you back, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, very important verse of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When you get there, look at verse 32. Uh, in 1 Corinthians ten thirty-two, God identifies for you the three groups that the, the word of God will be uh, uh, directed toward. One of three groups. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. That verse says, give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. There are the three groups that are referenced in the word of God. Jews, Gentiles, and the, word, and, and the church were Christians. So those are the three groups that would be addressed. Commentators have made up an additional group that they're calling Christian Jews. That's not found in the word of God, and God does not identify that group as a group that he writes to or directs anything toward. If you remember, when we went through the book of Hebrews, they did the same thing. They said the book of Hebrews was also written to Christian Jews, when in fact we realized as we went through that book, uh, that was none of that, that was true at all. Uh, in the first five verses of the book of first Th- uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul discusses his background as a Jew. You remember that? He declared his tribe and talks about his zeal when he operated as a Jew. But if you remember in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. He said, but what ga- things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. After going through his entire pedigree as a Jew, he gets to verse 7 and says, none of that was worth anything. <laughs> it's worth nothing. Paul says, when I became a Christian, my Jewish heritage was worthless, and all that I did up to that point meant nothing whatsoever. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, uh, he declares that in the body of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Remember that? No such thing in the scripture as a Christian Jew, because once you get saved, folks, your earthly heritage means nothing. I know a lot of folks who get very tied into, you know, where they came from and so forth, and that's all well and good from a a physical point of view. Spiritually, it means no, makes no difference whatsoever. Once you get saved, you're part of the church, and your heritage means nothing whatsoever. So there's nothing in Scripture that is referred to, anybody in Scripture that is referred to as a Christian Jew. And by the way, it is interesting, as you go through the book of James, you won't find the word Jew or the word Christian anywhere in that book. It's not even there. So James is, uh, says that he is writing to the 12 tribes. That means he is writing to Reuben and Issachar and Judah and Benjamin and the rest of the identified tribes of Israel. And because of that, we would expect that, that this scripture, that, rather this doctrine of this book, is not written to the church. If it was written to the church, it would not be written to the physical tribes of Israel. This doctrine in the book of James is not written to the church. The doctrine here is doctrine for the Jews. That's what the doctrine is all about. Now, that being the case, the doctrine can apply to one one of three time periods. It can either apply to the time of Old Testament law, it can apply to the tribulation, or it can apply to the millennium. Because those three time periods are periods of time where the Jews are the primary focus. Well, we know the book of James is not directed to the Old Testament law, folks, because that has long passed. So, the book of James, doctrinally, is doctrine for the tribulation and the millennium. This is doctrine that those who go through those two time periods are going to have to know about in order to gain the salvation that God has for them during those periods of time. It's going to be one of those two places, one of those two time periods. And therefore, the doctrine that we're going to see in this book, the doctrine we're going to see in this book matches the book of Matthew and also matches the book of Hebrews and also matches the first part of the book of Acts. We've seen in those books doctrinally, they also have a primarily Jewish focus. Now, that is the introduction. And Joyce, you stayed awake. I'm proud of you. Thank you for doing that. I I thought every so often I'm going to scream just to keep Joyce awake, but I don't want to scare the rest of you, so I'm not going to do that. But Uh, But again, it may be dull and tedious to go through that. But I'm going to tell you, folks, unless we start with that understanding, you're going to have a hard time understanding the doctrines you're going to find as you begin to go through this book. It's going to become very confusing when you hear some of the things that James is going to say. And so we cannot try to match this doctrine, doctrine now. You can't match the doctrine of the book of James with anything that you find, for example, in Paul's writings. Because Paul is writing to the church and James is writing to Jews in the tribulation or in the millennium. And that'll become clear as we continue to go through this book. So setting the doctrinal aspect of this book aside, we'll get more to that as we go through the study. I want to mention some, some practical themes you're going to find in the book of James. In fact, I think I wrote these down on your outline as well. We're calling this study, and we're going to call this throughout the time we do this, the gospel in action. This is putting feet to the gospel that God has given to us. And the practical themes you find in this book will support that title. We can say the overall theme of this book is what we might call the proofs of faith. How do I know that I have faith? Well, James is going to show you exactly how you can see faith in action and have proof of proof of your faith in your behavior. So that is the overall theme. Uh, It also focuses on how a believer can endure temptation. It talks about how a believer should respond to other believers around him or her. And I'm sure you're aware James has a great deal to say about your tongue. And the benefits that it can bring and also the damage that can be done in terms of how we use that muscle in our mouth has much to say about people, has much to say about the use of money. It gives us an overall picture of what godliness looks like and how that quality should show through in everything that a believer does. So there is doctrine to be learned from this book, doctrine that does not apply to us specifically. But aside from that, there is a great deal of practical truth that we want to see from this. Some of the greatest instruction in Scripture, I believe, is found in this book as far as how a Christian's life should live and how a Christian who is dedicated to the Lord, how that life shines out, uh, that dedication in the way they walk and in the way they talk. Now, having worn you completely out with the introduction, let's get into the study. Uh, And I believe this book will have life-changing effect on us. And we'll hear what James has to say to us as the Holy Spirit of God works through it. With all that said, look at verse 1 again. It says, James, and watch it, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he starts. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you again of who's writing this book. This fellow was in the inner circle of the disciples. He was one of the big three, if you want to call him that. He saw things that only two other disciples saw. Aside from John, he probably knew Jesus Christ as well, if not better than any other disciple that walked with Jesus Christ during his three and a half years. If there was ever a breeding ground for pride and importance, James was living in the center of it. And yet, as he introduces himself, he refers to himself as a servant, as a servant. Now, here's what I think. And I think this is proved out in other places in the word of God as well. I believe that the closer a person gets to Jesus Christ, the less pride there is and the more the person sees themselves as a servant. That's what I think. I think these disciples walk with Jesus Christ every day. They heard his words. They watched his reaction to things. And never once did they see Jesus Christ speak proudly of himself. Never once did they see Jesus Christ speak boastfully about himself. Never once did they hear him talk about himself in such a way as to exaggerate who he was or what he was capable of doing. Jesus Christ came as a servant. Uh, Philippians 2.7, you probably know the verse well. That verse says, Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. That's how he came. He came to minister to those he was sent to. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus Christ says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came for the express purpose of being a servant to those he was called to. And from the day his ministry started until the day he was crucified, that's exactly what he did. And every day those disciples were with him, they saw him model that out in front of them every day. And so when Peter writes his two letters, we've seen this as we've gone through that study. When Peter writes his two letters, he declares himself at the beginning of both those letters. How was he call himself? He calls himself a servant, a servant. When Paul writes his letters, having gone to school with the Holy Spirit in the desert after his conversion, he identifies himself as a servant. And James, as he writes his letter, declares himself to be a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here is the conclusion to draw from that. Any believer who is not a servant has not spent enough time with Jesus Christ. Any believer who sings their own praises and declares their own abilities and builds them up themselves up in front of others is spending too much time with themselves and not enough time with the Savior. I've heard and known of some pastors who operated their ministries as though the people were there to serve them. I've known of some Christians who operated in the church as though they were the center of attention and their needs were most important. And all those things are indications of people who are simply not spending enough time with Jesus Christ. Pastor or not, that's the problem. That's the problem. Servanthood and Jesus Christ go together and the lack in one will affect the operation of the other. And by the way, we have one more indication of who is being written to, that is the literal 12 tribes of Israel. Notice the word he uses here. Read the rest of the verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. I want you to turn over to the book of John, if you would. Go to John chapter 11. And when you get there, look at verse 51. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 51. That word scattered there is a reference to the twelve tribes. Uh, John eleven fifty one. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God which were, that were scattered abroad. He's talking about those that are scattered, and he's talking specific, specifically of that nation. Well, who is that nation? That nation is the nation of Israel. Every indication in this book tells us that this book is written to literal Jews from literally the 12 tribes of Israel. So how does this book start out? This book starts out by telling us, uh, "If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we'll be servants. And if a person claims to be a, a servant of Jesus, Christ, uh, rather a follower of Jesus Christ and is not a servant, there's something not matching up. Something not together there. Uh, there's something wrong. Look at verse two. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. <laughs> he had to get two verses in, and he says to you, count it all joy when you get into temptation. Now, if he hasn't crushed your self-esteem enough by calling you a servant, now he says to you, when you, get our, when you become a, sa- a, a, a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, you're going to be tempted. You're, that's going to go hand in hand with being a believer. And we're not to respond to that temptation by avoiding it, or by complaining about it, or by announcing how unfair it is. He says, take that temptation with joy. Now, since the Bible defines itself, I want us to consider what these temptations are that James is referring to. We first of all know that James is not, being, is ta- not talking about being tempted to do evil. Drop down to verse 13. Uh, James 1.13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So we find out here is uh, these temptations come from God, so they cannot be temptations to do evil because verse 13 tells us God would not tempt us to do evil. So these temptations referred to here are temptations that are not temptations rather than draw us into some fleshly behavior. So I want you to look at two two verses of Scripture, if you would. I want you to take one hand and go to Genesis chapter 22 and take the other hand and go to Hebrews chapter 11. And let's find out specifically what these temptations are, because it's very important for us to know that if we're going to get the message that James is trying to give us as we continue on. So Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 22. I want you to start in Genesis chapter 22 first. We're going to read verse 1. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says there, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. Here I am, rather. So we have a contradiction because, you see, uh, that James says God does not tempt anybody, but here we have God tempting Abraham. Finally, we found the contradiction we've been looking for. We can throw the Bible out because we finally found the contradiction, <laughs> Well, the Bible interprets itself. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and look at verse 17. Hebrews 11:17. By faith, Abraham, when he was, what's the word? Tried. You see it? But by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. What do we find? We find the tempting here by God is actually a trying by God. It's not a temptation to do evil. Rather, it's a testing or a trying. You see it? That's why verse 3 says what it says. Look at verse 3. It says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So the temptation or the testing is a trying of our faith. It's a testing of our faith. Now, notice the word he uses there in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. The word is fall. Now, think about that word for a minute, the word fall. Uh, Last summer, I took my dad to a doctor appointment. It was pouring down rain when we came out of that appointment, so I had him wait under the awning, and I told him I'd get the car and bring it around so he wouldn't have to walk through the rain. Well, because it's raining, I took off running toward the parking lot. Well, not being as agile as I used to be, and really I never was very agile to begin with, uh, but my feet got ahead of my body, and I began to lose my balance. And before I knew it, I was skidding across that parking lot on my stomach. <laughs> and I probably would still be skidding uh, had my head not connected with a curb and stopped me from skidding any farther. <laughs> now, it wasn't until we got in the restaurant about an hour later, I realized I didn't have my glasses on. <laughs> Apparently, in the process of me skidding on that parking lot and hitting my head on that curb, my glasses flipped off and I never even knew it. <laughs> I think I was just so sort of shocked by the fall. Uh, now, I don't tell you that story to make me look foolish, although I'm sure it has accomplished that very well. I tell you that story because of this. When I got up that morning, until the time that I made it, my gazelle-like run across that parking lot, I never once had it in my thoughts to fall. I didn't have on my to-do list that morning, fall in a wet parking lot. That was not my intention whatsoever. That fall was totally unexpected. It just happened, and I had to deal with it. And I believe that is why James, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, uses that word. What he's saying, folks, is, in most cases, God is not going to announce his testings to you. He's not going to put a sign up and say, okay, a testing is coming, get ready for it. Read through the entire book of Job, and you'll not find one time where God says to Job, okay, Job, here's what I'm going to do next. Get ready, here's the next step. And notice also, if you would, that James says in that first uh, verse two there, the first two words, my brethren. He does not single out certain people to be tested and certain ones who will not be uh, tested. If you're one of the brethren, if you're in the family of God, you're going to go through a testing from the Lord. It's just going to happen. And you will not know when the testing is going to occur. And also, you'll not know what the testing is going to be. Look at the verse again. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That word diverse there means many or implies a variety so God has an assortment of temptations He can put upon us, and you couple that with the statement, "the trying of your faith." What that tells us is this: God has a variety of ways to test us, and the testing He puts you through is going to be handpicked just for you. It's going to be a handpicked testing for you. God does it to try our particular faith. Look again, if you again if you would, uh, in verse three. Knowing this, that the trying of Your faith, your faith, the trying of your faith. He's going to try your individual faith. So he's going to look at your faith and get the characteristics and the qualities of your faith and then design a testing for that faith that is exactly what that faith needs to be increased and to be strengthened. He's got a variety of ways and God, as an all-knowing God, knows exactly the testing that we need. And as a good father, he's going to pick out that exact testing for you that will best serve the purpose for which that testing is designed. And because he is an all-knowing God, when he is finished, if we handle the testing well, it's going to accomplish exactly what God intended that testing to do. So we don't know when the testing is coming, just like I didn't realize I was going to fall that day. We don't know what the testing is going to be. And even with that limited information, I want you to go back to the verse again and see what James says. My brethren, count it all joy. (laughs) Now, get it. He says, count it all joy. We don't know the when. We don't know the what. We don't know the how. James says, take joy when God tests your faith. It's a fact that the Christian life, our lives, should be characterized by joy. Your life should be characterized by joy. That quality is what should distinguish us from all those around us who don't know the Lord as Savior. Amen. Now, to the lost around us, our joy may seem like we are out of touch. It may seem like we are disconnected from the world. How can we have joy when the world around us is going crazier, crazy and getting crazier by the moment? But you see, folks, it's not that we are out of touch. It's not that we are uninformed. We are just in touch with the right person and informed with the right information. Amen. We're just in touch and informed in a whole different way. When a person knows Jesus Christ as Savior and knows his word, joy can be the only result, even if the entire world is falling apart, even if your world is falling apart. (laughs) I know of Christians who are always depressed. They're always negative. They always see the worst in everything. And the only conclusion to draw from that is they have allowed something or someone or some circumstance to steal their joy. They've allowed some hand to get in there and pull that joy out from them. A person who knows Jesus Christ as Savior, a person who has sin forgiven, a person who has a home in heaven guaranteed should be a person who can find joy in every circumstance. Because at the very worst, folks, it's going to last for a while and God's going to take you out. (laughs) So no matter what happens, there is an end to your circumstance. And a Christian who cannot find joy in every circumstance is a Christian who is keeping company with the wrong people or who is digesting the wrong information. And I'm going to speak personally now. This may not be true for you, and that's fine. It's true for me. I pay very little attention to the news, and I, pay, I associate very little with those who, who are overly caught up in world events. I find my involvement with those folks, and with those things, it affects my joy. I realized years ago, when I watch the news every night, I just get depressed. I don't need to see all that stuff displayed in front of me every night of the week, because there's nothing good that's going on out there. Or very little going good anyway. Now, in my humanity, I may ask the question, how can there be any joy in the testing that God brings upon me? How in the world can I have God put me through some kind of a test and find joy in that thing? How can I find joy when God puts me through the furnace, when he heats me up way past my boiling point? Well, here's what I believe. I believe whether or not we are able to find joy in it depends on the preparation that we make prior to the testing. I think it's all in the preparation. Like so many things are in this world, it's all in the preparation. I can be ready to have joy in every circumstance. I can be ready to have joy in my testing. Only if I have done the necessary work ahead of time before God brings that testing into my life. And the preparation comes in two phases. I want you to turn, if you would, to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. If we're going to talk about testing, no better place to go than to the book of Job. Uh, He was a man who was tested. The only one tested more than Job was Jesus Christ himself. So go to Job chapter one and just look at the first verse, if you would. Job chapter one and verse one. Now, that verse says this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. That's how the book of Job starts. There is a very significant reason why that's how the book of Job starts. Because that lets you know the preparation that Job made before the trial ever came. And God is very obviously wants us to know that before he begins to talk to us about the trial that he puts Job through. Before Job's trial started, he was a man who feared God. He had a right relationship with God. He knew who God was. He knew that God loved him. He knew that God was faithful. In every way, Job feared God. He understood the best he could with his human knowledge. He understood who God was. And also, Job had the right relationship with God in that he avoided evil. He stayed away from evil. He didn't include evil into his life or entertain any evil thoughts or evil activity. His life was right with God in terms of what God expected from him. He was walking with the Lord. He had communion with the Lord every day. And so even though Job came to a point in his life and in his testing where he began to question some of the things that God was doing, uh, uh, humanly speaking, who wouldn't? When God finally revealed himself to Job, Job went right back to the relationship he had before the testing started. He just picked up right where he left off. Now, I know this. I know that if you are in the midst of a testing right now, uh, these words may sound hollow to you. It may be difficult for you to grasp the words I'm about to give to you. But that doesn't make these words any less true. And I want you to hear this tonight, either for what you're going through right now or what you may go through sometime in the future. Please understand, no matter what you are going through or what you will go through, God loves you. God knows what is best for you. God's plan is perfect. And what you are going through right now is exactly what you need. Get a hold of it, folks. Get a hold of it. God loves you. God knows what is best for you. God's plan for you is perfect. And what you are going through right now is exactly what your faith needs to be strengthened. And we need to settle that now. Get that taken care of tonight. Settle now that God is God and that what God does is best. Get it handled. Now, I realize in the midst of the trial, you may begin to waver a bit on that. I understand that. That's our human nature taking over. But listen to me. God only does for you what is best. God never has one bad motive for you. God never has an ulterior motive. God is never working on one side and pulling something on you on the other. It just doesn't work that way. That's not how he operates. And so what I need to do and what you need to do, if you are in a trial or not yet in a trial, walk as closely to him as you possibly can and keep your communion with him as pure as you possibly can. Because if that line gets clogged and the trial comes, you're going to have a hard time finding him. Because the dirt's going to be in the middle of it and get in the way. And what's going to happen is the trial will come and you won't be prepared for it. And it's going to be more painful and more prolonged as a result. Some folks go through the trial much longer than they need to only because the preparation wasn't done. And so what God has to do first is clear the line before he can get any communication going. If you've got that taken care of ahead of time, you've already skipped a step. It makes that trial go that much quicker. At least you'll be able to manage it that much better as a result. So uh, be prepared for it by making sure your walk with the Lord is right. Be prepared for it by understanding who your God is and the relationship that he has with you. That's the first preparation. Here's the second one you find it in the book of James. Go back to James if you would. We can prepare for the testing by understanding the purpose of the testing that God does. Again, God's motive is pure. God is not doing anything just to make you miserable. He does not do that. Look at the last part of verse 2 again, or rather, the last part of verse 3. Well, I'll do verse 2 and 3. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, we're going to talk a whole lot more about patience next uh, Thursday. But here's what we need to hear tonight. No matter how hot the oven gets, no matter how difficult the trial becomes, no matter how long that trial might go, please understand God has a purpose behind it. And that purpose is for our good. And that purpose will make us more of what God wants us to be in the process. Now, you may never understand the entire purpose. I don't think Job ever understood the full purpose of the trial that he went through. But that's not the point. Job knew enough of it that when God showed up, he went down on his knees and worshiped who God was. (laughs) He got closer to God as a result. If nothing more, he got closer to the Lord as a result of that. So no matter what God puts you through, please understand God always has a purpose behind that. And the purpose is always for your good. And no matter what happens in that trial, the purpose of that trial is to make you more what God wants you to be. You'll come out of the trial or get through that trial. You'll look more like Jesus Christ at the end of it if you allow him to do the work that he wants to do through it. So what does James do tonight? He starts us off uh, running full speed. He says, folks, be a servant of Jesus Christ. And number two, when the trials come, when the difficulties come, when the testing comes, when God puts something upon you, please understand, take joy in it. Take joy in it. Because I realize that God has a purpose behind it. Now, at the end of the trial, you're going to look more like Jesus Christ than you ever did. Now, if you're a mature believer in Jesus Christ, that's what you ultimately want. I mean, if you really are walking the way God wants you to, if you really have the full picture of what God's doing in your life, what you really want, above all things, is to look more like Jesus Christ today than you did yesterday. That ought to be your goal. Well, if that's your goal, verse 2 is for you. If that's what you want, verse 2 will do it for you. And we're going to see that more, as I say, as we get into it next week. But as we go through those trials, we'll look more like Jesus Christ. Our lives will be more in tune with him. And listen to me, those around you are going to see Jesus Christ in you like they never did before. Amen. If you handle the trial right, if you don't complain your way through it and dread your way through it and disgust your way through it and depress your way through it. If rather you say, you know what, this is from God, this is what God has chosen for me, this is going to make me more like him, I take joy in this. <laughs> Amen. If you'll do that, they'll see Jesus Christ in you like they'll see him in nobody else. As we use that trial, the way God has designed for it to be used. Stand if you would.